We are here in 1 John chapter 3, picking up where I left off a couple weeks ago. 1 John 3, and I'm not going to spend too much time introducing this. If you want to know more about it or where we were last time, you can look it up online. Um, But know this, John is writing, I'll say this, John is writing this letter to the church at that time and the church to us. It's relevant today. Um, and a number of the things that he addresses are speaking to the issues that, was, that were facing the church at the time, which I find not coincidental are issues that are facing the church today. Relative truth, right? That's your truth, that's not my truth. Or this higher knowing, this new knowledge. Today we'd call it new thought philosophy or new age. Um, but it really is just a repackaged deal of the old thing that the church saw back then, which is Gnosticism. Like there's this secret knowledge. Well, Jesus is true knowledge and his word is truth. So with that understanding, let's dive in here to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. But the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning, or rather, has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil." No one who is born of God practices sin, but, I'm sorry, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Let me ask you a question or two. How does Jesus affect you? Here's an interesting twist on that same question. How does Jesus appearing affect you? We see this theme coming up throughout this chapter, his appearing. And when he appears, we will be, (laughs) it will appear to us what we are, which seems maybe a little confusing at first, but we'll see here quickly that it's very straightforward. John is very straightforward in his letter to the church. This appearing, let me make this clear too, is not to be confused with Christ's return. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 tells us why. For God has not destined us, that is the children of God, that is the church, for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't destined us for wrath. In the book of Revelation, what do we see? The the tribulation described as the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God. Revelation 6.16 and verse 17. Revelation 14.10. Revelation 16.19. Revelation 19.15. Wrath of the Lamb, wrath of the Lamb, wrath of God, wrath of God. First Thessalonians 5.9 says, 
we, children of God, again, the church, have not been destined for wrath. Now, that doesn't mean, because some go, oh, you're just an escapist. Well, who wants to go through pain and suffering? Let's just ask that obvious human question. But that doesn't mean that we won't go through tribulation. Just look at our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, like China, or Iran, or Central Asia, or Russia. More and more in this world, it is becoming not just unpopular, it is becoming dangerous to share and to proclaim and to identify yourself as a Christian. There is tribulation facing the church. Jesus promised that that evening before he was betrayed. He told his apostles, his disciples, that they would suffer, that they would experience tribulation, but not the tribulation. This appearing is not speaking of the return of Christ. It's speaking of the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 describes the rapture, being caught up. Now, if you've believed in your heart and you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Romans 10, 9 tells us, you are saved, I'm saved, a.k.a. you become a child of God. The visible appearance of God's children is hidden now, but soon won't be. And this came to me um, after first service. I didn't share this first service, but it's like a baby. When a baby's first conceived, nobody knows what that baby's going to look like. Nobody knows that that baby's going to be a boy or a girl. Light skin, dark skin. My brother and I, um, if you heard us on the phone, our voices sound very similar. You look at us next to each other, look very different. I was the darky and he was the light-skinned bro. We, my mom and dad didn't know what we would look like until we were born. We were hidden. Who we are was just as true in the womb as we are now. Just as much human in the womb as we are now. But it did not become evident until we appeared to our parents. The visible appearance of God's children is hidden now, but soon won't be. Colossians 3, verse 3. For you have died, speaking of the old self, the old nature. You've died to your old self, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul describes the transforming life of a Christian currently, right now. If you know Jesus, you've confessed him and believed in your heart as your Lord and Savior, you are right now in a transforming process. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The glory begins at an internal level, a hidden level. Again, I refer back to the process of pregnancy. You don't see the baby until the baby's born, and then you see. Then it becomes apparent. Now, let me make this clear. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that one day we'll see Jesus fully and know him fully. And that is true also. As we're born and we continue to grow, we come to know who our parents are. And you can see evidence of that from a baby who's first born to a baby who's five months old. They start to become more and more attuned to their parents' voice. Their parents know them, they hear their voice, and the child learns to follow their parents. 
I share this. Well, I don't think I finished it. It says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. And this is why I have to address this. Raise your hand if you've heard the term or the expression or the belief that, you know, your best life now. You're living your life, your best life now. Have you heard that? Do this, live your best life now. It is a lie. Well, for some. For some others, this might be their best life. And I I mourn for those. But for those of us who've been born again in Christ, it ignores the reality. So, brothers and sisters, children of God, I would urge you, as the Lord makes it more and more apparent to me, not to be deceived by these philosophies that the world utters, these mantras that sound good, feel good, but aren't true of who he is, what he says, and therefore of us as children of God. It ignores the reality. It deceives people against the truth, and it totally opposes what God has promised in his word. David Guzik was quoting John Stott in his commentary, and I like the way John Stott put it. What we are does not now appear to the world. What we will be does not yet appear to us, which is why you can take encouragement. Those of you who've lived a little more life than some others, you get out of the shower and you look in the mirror and you go, it has not become apparent as to what you will be because your life is hid with Christ. And I'm so thankful for that. But I one of the things that has become apparent, no, no pun intended to me as I've gone through this chapter, is how Christ's appearing affects us. His appearing to you now, or whatever point that was when he appeared to you personally and you finally realized Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but also his appearing to come and how that affects us now. Did you guys catch what John writes at the end of verse two? How will we be transformed? We will be like him, not we will be him, I need to address that too. That's new thought. That's new age. We don't become gods or little gods. We will be like him in that I am like my dad, but I don't become my dad because we will see him just as he is. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Rick just recently taught through John chapter 20 and pointed out several different uses of the word see, like saw. And that came back to me while I was going through John's letter here. In John chapter 20, verse 5, it says, Stooping and looking in, John saw the linen, linen wrappings lying there. He's talking about John coming to the empty tomb and seeing Jesus isn't in there and the, linen, the linens there that wrapped him are lying there. It says, he saw The word in Greek is blepo, which is just the word that you and I would think. To see something is to visually see it. He saw it with his eyes. John 20, verse 6, and so Simon Peter also comes following John and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. But that time, the word is thereo, and it means to theorize, to consider, to speculate. John sees it, but he doesn't come into the tomb. Peter finally catches up and busts into the tomb and looks at, 
and he starts to consider what this means. Jesus isn't here. What could this mean? And then in verse 8, the other disciple, that's John again, who'd first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. This word, saw, is ido, and it means to be aware, to have an idea. Faith is sprouting in John's heart at that point. He doesn't fully comprehend it, but he, he starts to believe the truth of what Jesus had been telling his apostles all this time. But it's in John chapter 20, verse 24, that all the ideas, all the speculations, all the theories fade when they finally see Jesus. But Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have horao, we have seen the Lord. Horao is the word. But he said to them, Thomas said to them, unless I see, I do, in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Tommy boy just wanted proof and I can't say I fault him. But the others at this point have perception. Tommy's looking for visible proof, tangible. And his brothers had the privilege of seeing Jesus already resurrected and they finally perceived him they didn't just acknowledge him, they perceived him. I'm not trying to play semantics, there's a difference here. They had perception, which is to say, they had true knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. Not just that he's not in the tomb anymore, not just that he's alive, but what that means of who he is. So many want proof. But as we see throughout Scripture, proof does not produce sight. It doesn't create faith. We see that over and over again, like a broken record with Pharaoh, who hears from, you know, is encountered by Moses, and Pharaoh's heart is hard. And so God does signs and wonders in front of Pharaoh for a number of different reasons I won't get into this morning. But at no point does Pharaoh believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he saw tangible evidence that went straight to his own family. It affected his household, his own family, his own life. But he never perceived God for who he is, which is why we see Pharaoh make the decisions, unfortunately, he made with his own life and the life of his nation. Why can some people see Jesus and others can't? Why can some see and others can't? Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart. Not the, not the intellectually advanced. Not the scientific evidence. The pure in heart will see God. See, we also have to remember that Jesus, during his life on earth, was seen by thousands of people. Tens of thousands of people. Another side note here in terms of the evidence of Jesus, at this point, all the critics, anyone worth their weight in salt in academia will not ever now try and argue whether or not Jesus was a historical figure. And not just any Jesus, but the Jesus of Nazareth. They all agree, whether they believe in the Jesus of the scriptures or not, they all know 
He was a real person in history. What's also interesting is today, people, either out of skepticism or downright disbelief, a rejection to believe who Jesus is, will question whether or not he even did the miracles. Well, let me just put this one out here. None of Jesus's enemies, his greatest opponents, ever question what he did. None of them. None of the Pharisees said, do it again, or I don't, I don't believe you did that. They asked him, what authority do you do these things? They never questioned whether or not he performed signs and wonders. What they questioned was the authority and the power in which he did it. Here's your first point. His appearing inspires hope and transforms us. His appearing in here, not here. And to be pure in heart is to be undivided, singularly and completed, completely devoted to him. It's not polluted with Jesus and. I love God and. Oh, I'm a Christian and I do this. Like, you either are or you aren't. You either love Jesus or you don't. If you've ever want, wanted, if you've ever thought to yourself, Lord, I want to see you. One, be careful what you ask for because he's real. Um, but if you want to see him, then maybe what you and I need to do is remove the things in our lives that pollute our vision from seeing, perceiving, beholding who he truly is. Look at verse three with me. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is the hope for every Christian, every disciple of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will witness a transformation of these lives. They changed personally through the Gospels. Their understanding and their motivations were radically changed. You look at the men that Jesus first met, and after, you know, post-resurrection, they're still Peter, James, and John, and they still make mistakes, which is another reason why I believe the Scriptures. They give, if I can use the word, damning evidence of their own human nature and failure. And you wouldn't want to include that in something if you're trying to convince someone. But they don't make any apologies. They go, here's my humanness compared to God's perfection. All that to say, you see them change in what they say, what they seek, what they live for. They no longer fought with the sword, Matthew 26, 51, but the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17, Hebrews 4, 12. They went from seeking their best life now, Mark 10, 35, to laying down their lives, Acts 12, 1. Why? For a better life to come. They did not buy into my best life is now. They thought that before, and then as Jesus taught them and they learned to listen and follow him, he opened their eyes to the reality. Not mystical, esoteric ideas, but truth. We all have our perspectives. We all have our experiences, but like Les said, truth does not change, though. And I know that's offensive to our culture, and that might make some of you uncomfortable here this morning, I don't know. But what I do know is truth is definitive because it is defined by God, who is the prime reality of all existence, which is why our world and our society is doing this right now, because we're trying to reject reality. If you ever watched the show Mythbusters, I think it's Adam, he says, 
I reject reality and replace it with my own. And that's what we're trying to do. And it doesn't work because we can avoid and ignore the laws of science, the laws of physics. But when you try and live that way in this world, ignoring it, bad things happen to you. I can't just walk out through the middle of Highway 20 and expect not to get hit by a car. Reality is going to have a rude awakening. All that to say, you see these men's lives changed. Their motivations, what they said, why they did what they did, because they were finally seeing, perceiving, beholding Jesus for who he is, and it had a purifying effect on their lives, what they strove for. Like I said, Mark 10, 35, James and John come to Jesus saying, hey, will you make us our, your right and left-hand guys? When you come into your kingdom and you got all the glory, can we be the guys closest to your limelight? That's what they're asking for. They want the honor, prestige. After the resurrection, what happens to James? He goes out preaching the gospel and he loses his head for it, knowing that he would die for it. He's not looking for honor. He's not looking to preserve his life. He's looking to lay it down. Why? Because my best life is not right now. It will be coming soon. It will be apparent. I will finally see and I will finally know as I am seen and known. Beholding Jesus gives us boldness for Jesus, as my sister LB said. Why the drastic change in their goals and lifestyle? Again, Hebrews eleven sixteen. As it is, they desire a better country. That's a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. When we talk about hope in Scripture, it's not a hope against hope. It's not a poetic thing. It's not like, well... You know, maybe it's not a possibility. Hope, according to God's word, is an expectant anticipation for the future that is to come. And when we live with that hope, it transforms the life that we live presently. When I was dating my wife, once I finally, you know, woke up and smelled the coffee and was like, oh, that's who. Okay, God, now, now I'm tracking. Some of you have heard Cam's in my story. It took me a while to come around. But when I finally did, the, the plans I made, the decisions I made, and the things that I was pursuing changed. When we finally behold Jesus, we receive Jesus, and we live by the truth of his word, it will transform what we think, how we feel, what we value, what we decide, and why we decide what we decide. Look at verse 4 with me. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, there's that word again, in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Again, I said earlier, John is writing to the church when there was a lie creeping in and there were people who were trying to deceive believers. They were Gnostics. And the Gnostics had a, a belief called docetism. Rick mentioned it earlier. I actually remember speaking about it when I first started this book in the spring, docetism. The Gnostics of the time believed that all flesh, natural material, is, is, uh, is, is uh, evil. It's profane. So if Jesus is God, he couldn't have put on human flesh because that's profane, and he's not profane, he's sacred. 
Again, they begin to lean to their own understanding instead of receiving God for who he is. Now, the problem with Jesus not coming literally in human form is that if that was the case, he died on the cross, one, physically he wouldn't have died, and two, you and I would still be dead in our sin. Or we would be living by the Mosaic law, trying to cover, seeking to cover our sin with the blood of bulls and rams and goats. We don't live that way anymore. Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. God came down and put on flesh. That's not poetic. That's reality. And lived a perfect life and fulfilling the things that he had promised in advance, he finally nailed our certificate of death to the cross. How? By becoming man and living the death of a human in our place, but as a perfect sacrifice. I say all this because verse 5 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. John is saying that because there were people who were saying, not really. Yeah, Jesus appeared, but not really. No, really. Really. Because if it's not really, then it didn't happen. And in him there is no sin. Again, they're like, well, he can't wear flesh and be perfect. Yes, he can. Yes, he is. We have to, I know it sounds simple at first, but these kind of lies creep in and these kind of lies are coming out again today. New age, new thought philosophy. People take it and they start to twist it. It goes all the way back to the garden with Satan. He starts to ask questions to, to incite doubt. Did God really say that? And there's a lot of that doubt being perpetrated on the hearts and minds of Christians. That's why John says, don't be deceived. So, without going any further down that road right now, verse 4 seems to break away from verse 3. He's talking about us as beloved children, and when he appears, we'll be like him as he is, and everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself. And then John launches in and says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. What? That might be jarring at first. The first three verses of 1 John 3 are an exhortation and a reminder of encouragement to the children of God, who they are because of who God is. And that is central to the rest of what John writes. But verse 4 is picking up from where he left off in chapter 2, verse 29. Much of 1 John 3, as we're going to see, is a comparison and a contrast between between children of God and children of the devil. And John doesn't leave any room in between. And we know that because 1 John 3, 8, what does he say? The one who practices sin is of the devil. The one who practices righteousness is of God, is in him. It's one or the other. I said this first service, and I need to say this again. We are not born children of God. Now, that might be offensive to some, but what I'm saying is from Scripture, as we've just read it. We are born in sin. We're not born good people. If we were born good people, then we wouldn't need law. And some people have been trying to <laughs> experiment with that. And we've all seen, based on what we've seen on news and headlines, people without law go off the rails. Why? Because we're not inherently good. We need constraints. I mean, I'm a parent. <laughs> I don't just, my kids aren't born and they go, oh, they're just innocent and they're pure and good. 
You don't live like that as a parent. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. You got to raise them. You got to teach them. You got to guide them. And you don't give them rules to make their life hard. You, you give them boundaries to learn how to grow up into maturity, to walk in the truth. All that to say, as God's love defines the character of his children, lawlessness defines the character of those opposed to God. Love and lawlessness. And John defines sin as lawlessness. So then some, many, especially in today's church, have tried to separate the older covenant, the older Hebrew scriptures, from the New Testament, the newer covenant. But without the old, we wouldn't have the new. And the new is really the fulfillment of the old. The old just pointed us to the new. And it finally came to fruition in the new. But that doesn't mean the old is obsolete, per se. What I'm saying is, is we, go, we, we won't read the Old Testament. Well, that's the God of the Old Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Genesis as he is the God of Revelation and everyone and everything in between. He does not change. Hebrews 13, 8 tells us that. Law, what John is talking about here is not human law. It's not the American law. It's not the Constitution Let's not confuse our patriotism as Americans with our faith in Christ. And some of you are like, is he a communist? No, I'm not. But the Constitution was based off of this, not the other way around. Let's also be clear about that. This law John is talking about, he's talking from a Hebrew perspective, a Jew. Excuse me. He, wow, no one laughed at that. Anyway, he's speaking from the law of God. Goes back to the Mosaic Covenant. The law transcends human concepts and government, and the law defines and prescribes and gives us guidance and direction in how to love practically. Leviticus 19:18, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. To understand God's law, it cannot be viewed as a list of regulations, do's and don'ts. That's not the heart of it. And we know that because when Jesus, by his greatest opponents, questioned him, what is the greatest commandment? In other words, what's the greatest law out of all the laws God has given us through Moses? You know how Jesus answers it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. They ask for the law, and he answers with love. Why? Because the law and love of God are inextricably bound. And then you're like, but I can't follow the law. Exactly. Which is why we need Jesus. Because we are imperfect. And as children, he adopts us into his family to be his children, not by virtue of our merit, but by the character of his goodness. My kids will always be my kids, no matter how bad they fail, <laughs> no matter what kind of things, mistakes they make or choices they make, they will always be my son and my daughter. That doesn't change, which should liberate you and I to stop trying to be a good person and simply learn to live in his word. And his word transforms us from the inside out. Do I have to go back to 1 John 3, 2? It's not apparent to us what we will be, but it will become when we see him. Because when we see him, we will be like him. I look forward to that every day that I get older 
and I get it out of the shower, and I look at myself in the mirror. I said this first service. There have been times Cam comes into the bathroom. Jake, the, the bathroom light's off. I know. That's intentional. I don't need to see this. Because <laughs> there's something better to come. My best life is coming. It's not now. But we're talking about here in verses 4 through 6, we see a distinction being made about those who practice sin, lawlessness. And no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Since God's law promotes and prescribes love, the opposite is also true. We see that in Matthew 24, 12, when Jesus describes signs of the end. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. A lawless society is a loveless society. And we have seen that on display very loudly the last two and a half years as things have been undermined. Love distinguishes people who belong to God and lawlessness, people who are opposed to God. Now, the word for lawless goes beyond just people who sin. Let's also make this clear, and I'll, I'll define a little bit better here in a little bit, but I'm looking at a crowd of people who are like me and that no one here is perfect. So none of us, even those of us who have been saved, born again into God, are perfect. We still sin. We still make mistakes. So what John is saying here is not just people who sin and those who don't, because the word lawlessness here is much deeper than we might take at first glance. In verse 4, lawlessness is the same word used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, Paul writes to the church, for it will not come, the day of the Lord, the end, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's the Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So again, John's not simply talking about people who sin, but people who live in opposition to God. God gives us the law. God is the definition of love. Those who walk and live in opposition to him are walking in opposition to the law, a.k.a. lawlessness. It gets pretty simple and logical. John writes to us like children. Marshall points out <clears throat> the advantages of taking the word lawless in this way fits with John's earlier teaching on the presence of antichrists in the world. It associates this section here in 1 John 3 of the letter closely with the immediately preceding passages, as we'll see. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. This mystery of lawlessness is at work right now in our society and in our world. But it's going to come to full fruition when the lawless one is revealed. And we're going to see a world so devoid of love we have not seen ever, ever. It'll be unprecedented. All this to say no one who lives in Jesus 
lives a life of sinning. You don't live, you cannot be a child of God and live in opposition to God. Anyone who lives like this has not seen him or knows him. When the apostles perceived, realized, finally fully received Jesus for who he is, they were changed. They didn't live like they used to. Not because they tried to live differently. They were born again. They received who he is, and he affected the change in their life. His appearing affects us. So a question, again, I want to ask is, do you see Jesus? Do you behold him? Do you perceive him for who he is? Not just based off of history, scientific, archaeological discovery, but for who he is revealed by his word. He makes himself apparent to anyone who wants to see him. It's also interesting that after Jesus' resurrection, only his followers saw him. Now, you read about his appearances, and there were many of them. It wasn't just once. But the one that really baffles me is it says that Jesus, in the Gospels, ascended back into heaven from the Mount of Olives or from the Mount. Literally, can you imagine you're driving down 20 or you're hiking around Deception Pass and you look up and you see this person like come off of Goose Rock and just go up into the clouds? How could you not see that? Because faith is more real than fact. Because seeing Jesus is not based just on scientific proof. Jesus did things that defied the laws of physics, but they were very real. Their door was locked and shut, hiding in fear of the Jews. And then he just appears. Jesus walked on water, really and truly. How does he do that? Because the spiritual is more real than the physical. And so we're not going to see him in spirit and worship him in spirit and truth unless we come to him spiritually in truth. So let's pick up at verse 7. He goes on and says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning, that's what it literally reads as, from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Again, his appearing has an effect. His appearing inspires hope and transforms us. Beholding Jesus gives us boldness for Jesus. And his appearing destroys lawlessness, sin, and death. Marshall also says, sin is not a matter of isolated peccadillos. peccadillos. I love that. I read that, I'm like, peccadillo? Is he speaking Spanish? No. For us less educated like myself, that word literally means offenses and failings. In other words, sin isn't a matter of just single solitary offenses. If you're doing this all the time, it stands to reason, he says, it's an expression of siding with God's ultimate enemy. It evidences where my heart is at. If I'm always practicing living in sin, living contrary to God's values, that's because I'm not aligned with God. And what is the sin that all others flow from? See, we can talk about swindling. We can talk about sexual immorality. We can talk about all the different kind of sins that we see described throughout the scriptures. But at the end of the day, they all flow from one ultimate sin. And it's the sin that Satan committed first. See, Satan sees God, but he doesn't see God. 
He's blinded by his pride. He knows that God is God, but he doesn't trust in, submit to, yield to, and believe in him as God. He wants to be like the most high. He wants to be in the position of power. Unbelief is the sin from which all others flow. Our sins, whether they be sexual immorality, drugs, you list it, you name it, it all flows out of a lack of belief, ultimately. If we know it's really bad, then why do we do it? Because we don't actually believe that it's bad. We do what's best for us, right? Are you convinced of what is true and what is not true? All this to say, Jesus explains in Luke 12, 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, Jesus, it will be forgiven him. And we know that because there were people who spoke against Jesus. Peter did. He says it'll be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Why? Because to vilify, to slander the Holy Spirit is to deny the Holy Spirit who makes you born again in God. You cannot be born again and yet at the same time, same breath, vilify, slander, reject, and rebel against the Spirit that would make you born again child of God. Side note, and I keep mentioning this. This is just where my head and heart has been as I've been going through this. It's interesting how in all these instances we see the effect of Jesus appearing the effect his appearing had on his disciples, his apostles, the effect his appearing in the future has on the life of children of God presently. For the children of God, his appearing, again, inspires hopeful expectation. Let me just say this. If you are struggling with hopelessness, I defer you back to 1 John 3, 4. Put your eyes back on Jesus. Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water, and then he got distracted by the hopelessness, the, the immensity, the ferociousness of the storm. He took his eyes off of Jesus and started to sink. That did not mean that Jesus loved him any less. But John found himself drowning in the hopelessness of this present darkness. So what do we do to rise above it? We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. God doesn't help those who, love, who help themselves. That's not true. That's not in Scripture. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who receive him, who look for him, who love him, who follow him. So if you're dealing with hopelessness, put your eyes back on him. Turn back to him. And his hopeful expectation will transform you from glory to glory. But his appearing, as we see here, also lifts away, takes away sin. Well, what happens to those who live in sin and the sin is lifted away? They're exposed. There's an exposing of the evil. His appearing destroyed the work of the devil, sin and lawlessness. And when Jesus returns to this world, his glorious appearing will crush evil, lock up the devil, and usher in a time of peaceful justice and righteousness and harmony the world has never experienced that's what his appearing does. But as we read again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. His appearing destroys lawlessness, sin, and death. And that is why children of God, 
you will experience hostility from this world. Just because you follow and believe in Jesus, because the Spirit of Christ in you will offend and convict this world's darkness around you. Jesus promised that in John 16, 8. The Holy Spirit will come to convict this world of unrighteousness, of judgment, of sin. And, some, and everybody has a choice. Will I receive that conviction and go, oh, okay, I was wrong. You're right. Save me. Or, get that out of here. Why did they want to kill Jesus? He didn't do anything against them because his Holy Spirit convicted their unrighteousness. In John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He's speaking to the apostles. I also want to clarify something here. If you look at verse 9, it says, No one who's born of God practices sin because his seed, that's the Holy Spirit of God, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. So if you're reading this and you're going, uh, I've already sinned this morning. What does that mean? Are you having a crisis of faith? <sighs> I did for a lot of years. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. Remember, he's writing to the church. But then here, in verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. Which is it, John? You're tearing me apart. What is it? And I remember feeling this way as a kid, as a teen. Let me put it to you this way. First of all, when he's talking about sin, he's talking about habitual sin, not occasional Sin for God's children is to be the exception to life, not the rule. There's a big difference, for example, between accidentally breaking the speed limit, which I have done, and intentionally murdering someone. Big difference. We all should recognize that. Look at verse 10 with me. We'll see, again, lawlessness characterized here in just a second. In verse 10, he says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone, literally everyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John's not making this up. He's, he's reiterating what Jesus has already said. And he goes on in verse 12, not as Cain was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. When you live a righteous life, it exposes unrighteousness. It will convict and offend people. Jesus' existence offended people. His spirit offends because it exposes the unrighteousness. The distinguishing characteristic here between children of God and the children of, devil, of the devil are two. He says it here. Look at the end of verse 10. They practice righteousness and they love their brother. And when I say brother, I don't just mean brother in a human term. Like, what's up, bro? Talking to another, another human being. And when God says, love your neighbor as yourself, the context within the Mosaic law was not anybody and everybody. It's not just 
who you happen to be living next door to, that context there was speaking within the household of God. Love cannot be true and real unless it is also righteous. Love is not what we make it. It is who God is. He defines love. And so to reject God's truth is to deny his love. And I didn't come up with that. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 tells us that. That's from his word. And as children of God, we're to love each other. This is when this really started to hit me some time back. Recently, within the last few years, Jesus is saying the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, right? And the second one is like it. And then what does Jesus say to his disciples in John 13, 34? A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Yeah, we got that. Even as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved you? How has Jesus loved the world? even though the world did not know him and the world did not receive him. He, Jesus goes on to say, John 13, 35, by this, this love, all men, humanity will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Unconditional love. I'm going to hazard a guess that some of you right now have been offended by someone else in here right now. Because if fellowship is family, family life can be messy. I know, I have a brother. I mean, I have lots of brothers, but you know what I mean. You live with people, and they're the people you love the most, and they're the people that you can get in some of the nasty arguments with. But we're to love each other as he has loved us. How far, how humble did Jesus lower himself to love us into life? When Peter asked, how many times should I forgive? What was Jesus' answer? 70 times seven, a.k.a. without number. By the time I've forgiven someone of the 10th time, I start to lose count. I'm bad at math. Some of you might get into the hundreds. We're gonna lose track. Why? That's forgiveness, to let it drop, let it go. And I know, and I say this without joking, that I have done or said things to some of you in here that you've been offended by whether I've known it or not. Will we love each other the way Jesus has loved us? Will we release each other of wrongs done? And you know what's interesting is when Jesus' disciples, let's use Peter, <laughs> he's kind of easy, unfortunately, to pick on, but I really re relate with Peter. When Peter had done Jesus wrong, Jesus went to Peter. Jesus didn't shun Peter. Jesus didn't deny Peter. Jesus sought Peter out to forgive him and to restore him. We are to love each other with that same restorative love. How many times am I supposed to do it? How many times has Jesus forgiven you? Of the same thing. That's how marriages work too. She keeps on, yeah, well, dude, you keep on loving your wife. How much? As much as Jesus loves you. And vice versa, ladies. He just doesn't get it. No, we don't. So we need to keep on loving each other to king, till kingdom come. And one day it will be apparent. Some of you in here might be like, yeah, I love Jake, but oh, man, when I see him, I got a shiver up my spine. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh too quick at that, bro. <laughs> one day you're going to see me in the kingdom and you're going to see me for who I really am. 
and I'm going to see you for who you really are, children of light. And that is how we're to look at each other now, not later. That's a transforming love that comes by being children of God, not trying to act like children of God, being children of God. Look at verse 13 with me. John continues, Do not be surprised, brethren. Ladies, that's all of us. (laughs) Brothers and sisters in the faith. If the world hates you, don't be surprised. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. How many times do we see Jesus out of an abundance of love for his fellow countrymen, his people, who he saw as children, children of Abraham? How many times do we see Jesus, his intention, his ultimate goal is to proclaim the good news to them? But how many times do we see him use physical, tangible elements to communicate that love? There have been people who have been following him for three days on foot. They're far away from home, they're famished. And he had compassion in their heart. And what did he do to show that compassion? He fed them physically with fish and loaves. And not just a little bit. It wasn't like a little Lunchable snack. There were guys in the crowd like me. I can put it down. Like, give me 10 Lunchables, man. And it says that there was so much that they had leftovers. He loved them in every way, shape, and form. His love was evidenced to them in the things that he said and the things that he did in truth and in deed. We are to love each other that way. And we see, going back up here, in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. I have to say this. There has been a violent reaction to Roe v. Wade being overturned. That's because there's a clash of culture, a clash of identity between those who love life and those who despise it. Let me read something that a theologian wrote here. Science reveals that human life begins at the time of conception. Science. Not religious, backward, you know, backwoods, narrow-minded people. Science reveals human life begins at conception. How do we know that? Because when fertilization happens, immediately, all of the necessary info, the DNA, the information in that human that people call embryo, is the same amount of information that's in you and me right here sitting. They are just as much on a scientific level, just as much human by definition of the character and quality they possess in their DNA as you and me. You and I look differently. Some of us are younger. Some some of you are younger than me. Some of you are about the same age. Some of you are older than me. We don't change in viability. Our humanness doesn't change based on how old we are or how young we are. This is why the world is opposed to the church. Let me back up. I'm going to continue reading this. I said this, but I want to make it clear. The DNA is all there. 
the only thing that the human embryo needs to become fully functioning is the time to grow and develop. Which I want to say an encouragement to you, if you're new in the Lord, if you've given your life to Jesus recently, or you're just, you, you received him, but you're still pretty infantile in your faith, you are no less Christian than one of us here who've been walking with the Lord for 20 or 30 years. You're not of less value. The moment you receive Jesus, you have eternal value. No matter how many years, months, minutes you've been walking with him. Because Jesus honors life because Jesus is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He wants life for all. And the world is opposed to the church of Jesus because we stand for life. This is not a political issue. This is a spiritual reality. But John expounds on this love further, and it's often convicting here. Look at verse 17. It says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. That word closes is the same word that John uses in John 20, 19. Some of you might know what I'm referring to because Rick just talked about it. So when it was evening on that day, this is before the disciples had seen Jesus resurrected. The first day of the week, when the doors were shut, it's the same word as closes in verse 17, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They are in a room locked down. Their door is shut. They're secluded from the world, and they have locked the world out. That's what that word means. And John uses it here within the context of locking our hearts against, closing ourselves against brothers and sisters. Again, I want to go back to something that I've just recently mentioned because it's so personal to me. I understand after a while when you get offended by a brother or sister in Christ, we look at them and it's like, you're a Christian. You should know better. You're a hypocrite. And after we get offended so many times, it might only be once, we go, nope. Which is why some people have left the fellowship of the church. I don't leave my family, though, when my brother offended me. At some point, I got to pony up and talk with my brother. And if we can't resolve it, then we went, we had to go talk about it with my mom and dad. But we don't leave each other. We don't shun each other. We don't close our hearts off towards each other. One of the things that I grew up hearing, especially as I got older, my mom and dad, especially my dad, would say this. Nothing, few things filled their heart with joy and gladness like when they heard their sons loving each other, playing together, working together. I got to say this. I remember growing up in Bakersfield, there's a house built in 1921, little bitty house, but a big old lawn. There was a hedge that was as long as the Great Wall of China and at least twice as tall. And there was a crepe myrtle that constantly put out leaves that were sticky with honey on Well, it wasn't honey, but it's like walking over leaves with honey. And then there was a magnolia tree, beautiful magnolia tree. But I hated that tree because it all the time shed leaves. Yard work never stopped. There was never a season where, oh, we don't have to anymore. No, we always had to. So anyway, it was a big duty. And uh, yeah, you guys will appreciate this. <laughs> you guys are like, man, this is really cutting close to home. Dude, I relate. Dad's like, all right. Time to do yard work. We go out there. My brother and I, like I said, are very different personalities. And we started to learn. My dad would say, okay, I want you guys to do this, this, this. And so when my dad would walk away, we would devise between each other, okay, you take this tree and this hedge, and I'll take this tree and these leaves. And we'd 
you know, divide and conquer. My dad would come around to check on us and go, hey, what are you doing? We're like, what you told us to? I didn't tell you to do this. We're perplexed. Come here. I want you two to do it together. So much easier. It goes better when I just do it. But we learned to work together. And my dad would say, Jacob, you rake. Tyler, you gather the leaves. It was always better to rake instead of gather the leaves. You have to bend down and pick it up, and then you put it in, and then they fall out, and it's just, ugh. But all that to say, we had to do it together. We had to do it together. Jesus says, they'll know that you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. Don't close your heart off to each other. I don't say this as a joke. I say it seriously. Please don't close your heart off towards me. I know that I offend people. I'm married. I know that I offend people. (laughs) There are times where I don't even mean to, and I've done something that's offended Cam. Well, she's not easily offended, thankfully. But I know that I'll do things that'll bother you, and you'll do things that'll bother me. Please, let's forgive each other. Let's love each other with that pure love that Jesus has loved us first with. Because when we start to work together, live together, love each other, man, what, we, what God's children can do for the kingdom exponentially multiplies. And then other kids on the street, if I can use this you know, metaphor, can see it and be like, I want to hang out with them. Have you ever been to a friend's house growing up and you're hanging out with their family and then you're having such a great time and they say, hey, why don't you stay for dinner? And you just love being with their family. And you see, you know, they'll banter with each other. One of them will like really chastise the other one. But then they move on and they love each other and they hug each other. You want to be a part of that. Do we love each other in such a way that invites people to be a part of God's family as children themselves? Are we controlled by love? Look at verse 19 with me. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. That word assure would be better translated as, why am I blanking out? Persuade. It's not a bad word, but persuade helps us understand this a little bit better, and you'll see why in a second. We'll know by this, if we love each other, not just with word or tongue, but indeed in truth, we'll know by this that we are of the truth and will persuade our heart before God in whatever, for whatever our heart condemns us in, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. I mean, if we're really going to boil it down and look at it simply like children, I had a lot more confidence come and ask my dad for something when I had just given something to my brother, my, you know, blood brother. But if my dad found out that I had been stingy or didn't give things or help my brother out, that did not compel my dad to want to honor my request. And I have (laughs) come full circle. Now I'm that dad. One of my kids asked me for something, and I go, I'm curious. You guys got in an argument about a half hour ago, right? Yeah, it starts to dawn on them. Did you end up letting them, like, borrow that from you? Well, no. So why should I let you borrow this? Oh, 
you shouldn't. I'm like, no, I love you though. I'm gonna let you, but I want you to go let them borrow this from you. We have confidence to come before the Father and ask him when we're keeping his command. We can walk confidently when we know we're living in a way that pleases him. Are you confident in God's love? James 2.15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself, a.k.a. you don't have faith if your life doesn't demonstrate a life that trusts in him. Do we have confidence? Do you have confidence? These are characteristics of God's children. That's one of the points. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm beyond the points. It's God's word. That's what matters. Another point here was controlled by love. God's children are controlled by love. And this, la- this second to last point is confident in love. God's children are confident in love. John isn't suggesting here, if we look back at verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. He's not implying that we trust in our heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is why we cannot, Proverbs 3, 5, depend or lean to our own understanding. We must depend on God's. We don't trust in our heart. We have to trust him in his. I'll give you an example. I know this relates to some of you, but again, to my shame, there have been times where I was convicted, I was being compelled to give something materially to another brother or sister in Christ, and I didn't. I justified why it wasn't necessary. Well, I still love God. This doesn't mean I don't love God, and someone else will take care of this, and you know, I'm, I'm not gonna give it to them because I think the Lord wants them to practice faith. They need to trust God more. We've come up with all kinds of incredibly self-righteous, hypocritical excuses why we don't have to do what God is clearly convicting us to do. And I'm not saying that you should find all the poor brothers and sisters here and give everything you have to them. It's based on how he convicts you. But if he's compelling you to give something to them, don't close your heart off because you won't walk in that confidence. He wants you to be confident in his love. We're to love each other as Jesus loves us. Jesus didn't close himself. He didn't go, well, I don't really have to die for you guys. Look at all the things that I've said. All my teachings should be enough. And look, I I fed you, I've done all, I love some of you when no one else would. I don't have to die for you to prove it, do I? Love is sacrificial. God's love ought to control and influence my decisions and actions. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. When we live under the control of the Holy Spirit, we'll do things that violate our sense of self-preservation. Jesus did. He did not want to die on the cross, but his love for the Father and his love for you and me trumped his own self-preservation. I don't know if you know that. He didn't want to die on the cross. He didn't want to experience humiliation, but he gladly and contently did it, not for him, but for the Father and then for us. 
And we are to love each other that way, sacrificially, not out of the surplus, but out of poverty even. Give up something of yours to someone else. That's the way Jesus has loved us. Look at verse 23 with me. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. To believe in the name is to believe in his nature. His name is his nature. His name is who he is. And love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides, lives in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the last point. Confirmed in Christ's commandment. You'll walk confidently in love because you're controlled by his love, and so you are confirmed by his command. Living by God's word is to love God. And Jesus is God's word, John 1, 14. And to love Jesus is to keep his commands. He said that. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. You'll keep my word. To keep his commands is to practice righteousness. That's what children of God do. Children who love their parents live to please. They want to please their parents. I see that still in my kids. They, they come up with ways to do things that they know will please Cam and I. Why? Because they love us. They'll do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Wash the dishes. Clean something. Why? Because they know that'll mean a lot to us. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Children of God, abide in his word. And lastly, John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And so this chapter here ends with the first mention of the Holy Spirit in John's letter. And the Holy Spirit in this letter is not described confirming the believer's heart. It's, he's actually described confirming the heart of God to believers, which is why you and I might find ways to justify living selfishly, but what, is, what does Jesus command me to do? Okay, then I'm gonna do this, even though it doesn't feel right. Don't trust in your heart, trust in his heart. And practicing Christ's command of love and righteousness confirms our confidence. He wants you to be confident in his love. Worship team, if you guys want to come up. Prayer team, same thing for you guys. Um, there's a lot of people in the church who, who don't have confidence. And I think part of that, a big part of that, is because they haven't taken time. They believe in Jesus. They've been born again. But they don't spend time on a daily, weekly basis getting to know his heart from his word. If you're here and you're struggling with something, or you're here and you're hearing this and you're going, I want that love. I want to be a child of God. I want to be able to love the way Jesus loves. Then we would love to pray with you and introduce you to our Heavenly Father. That's between you and him, but we'd love to pray with you. If there's anyone or anything that you want to pray about, that's why we're here. So please be encouraged to come forward and pray. Would you guys stand with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you that your word is sure and true and that your love is tangible and practical and real to us. And in that same way, you show us how to practically, tangibly, in real time, love each other with the love you've given us. 
would you seal these things to us and give us greater and greater understanding and insight into what you've spoken to us from your word, Jesus. Holy Spirit, guide us in all truth. Amen.